Dave Seaver, CEO of Mind Alive, and you are listening to the Neuro Noodle Network Podcast. Thank you all for joining Neuro Noodles, Neurofeedback, and Neuropsychology Podcast, featuring our neuropsychologist, Dr. Laura Janssens, and Dr. Skip Wren. They've been practicing for over 50 years and are happy to share their knowledge with you. You can find Dr. Laura at Janssens.com, J-A-N-S-O-N-S.com, and Dr. Skip can be found at drskipren.com. That's drskiphrin.com. My name is Pete, and today we're going to chat with Dave Seaver, CEO of Mind Alive. Dave, thanks for joining us today. Hi, Pete. It absolutely is my pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, absolutely. We had to. We had John Anderson on a few shows ago, and he said, we got to get you on. So I'm like, all right, we'll go up north to Alberta and bring you on. That's like a prophet saying, hey, you got you to gotta take this guy in. And that's, that's a really good endorsement from John. Oh, no, he's, he's genius. He's genius. He trained all three of us. So, some of us more than once. That would be me. <laughs> well, there's, uh, there's, there's a lot of hard conceptual stuff to cover in neurofeedback. <laughs> Fortunately, John is one of the best trainers you could ever uh, have the privilege of being in the presence of. He is good. Well, Dave, I was going to ask you about Mind Alive, your company, but uh, I'm curious, how did you get in contact with John? How did that start? You know, it was about 30 years ago, I think. So I, I can't necessarily say <laughs> I recall how we actually met. I'm assuming it was at a conference uh, where I was lecturing at probably, and he probably took in, in the lecture. John is one of those uh, enlightened people who, who is able to think outside the box. And so he looks at all kinds of technologies, just like I do. And, uh, and so he's very open to other things. So probably he saw me at a conference. And even though I was a little outside the box, he, he took it in. <laughs> so my, Mind Alive, how did that come into play? How did you start that company? Give us some background. Mind, yeah, Mind Alive started back in 1981, actually, um, when I was uh, working at the University of Alberta. And of course, you read that Tinnitus article. And, uh, and I talk about my humble beginnings at the U of A. And how we were looking at tinnitus and TMJ issues from, from a dental perspective. And I built a, uh, I built a research lab for them. And, and in the process, I was, ended up teaching physiology to the dental students. And, uh, and I also had my own uh, TMJ uh, diagnostics course that I ran after about five or six years of being there. But that's how I started was doing through the TMJ route. And what happened is, is we, we developed a bit of a reputation of being mad scientists and and that's because you know, it, it might take us you know a few hours to get you know 15 or 20 electrodes all over our face and head to measure emgs and stuff and these were all stick on electrodes <clears throat> and then by noon we would go down for lunch me and the professor uh, norman thomas was the professor i worked for and we'd have a, just a big ponytail of cables hanging off usually my face or his face and and so people start talking to, about us being mad scientists and this and that, and uh, we kind of were a little bit, but uh, it was all good. And then an instructor in performing arts at the University of Alberta had heard about us and asked me to design this crazy new age bizarre, what I thought was a scam probably at the time, uh, a flashing light device so he could help uh, his students overcome stage fright. And the idea was he would put him into a hypnotic chance and do age regression hypnosis and find out at what point in their life did they develop stage fright. And he found that pretty much in all cases, um, 
these these uh, college students developed stage fright you know summers typically in primary school when they were doing a christmas play or an easter play or some kind of a play and they forgot their lines you know and even though the parents and the teachers all understood and they all were forgiving the little child carried that trauma uh on into uh college years and they had to deal with it and up at that point in time there was a fair chunk of literature on audiovisual entrainment being used for hypnotic induction which at the time i wasn't aware of i was struggling myself with anxiety uh, the university was not paying too well and and in those days in canada interest rates were 18 percent whoa it was brutal yeah, all because of a real estate uh, bear market or bull market, I mean, that went wild in um, Toronto. So the whole country ended up paying this price for Toronto real estate going wild. Uh, anyway, so it was very difficult times. You know, I had a $500 car. I spent a, many hours underneath the car, you know, getting oil and grit in my face, fixing stuff. That uh, was pretty common. But anyway, in the process of the anxiety that I was experiencing and I was starting to develop my own, t my own TMJ problems. I started using, fortunately I made two devices and these were called, <clears throat> they were called the David one. Now I didn't name them after myself. Uh, the, the instructor that I designed it for, he really owed me a lot more money. <laughs> I worked for a dollar an hour when I was done over a nine month span. And he said he couldn't afford to pay me. But he said, I'll name the device in such a way that you'll feel very honored. And so a few days later, because I had to put a name on the panel. And a few days later, he came back and said, I'm going to call it the David. I'm like, oh, geez, come on, man. <laughs> I don't think so. You know, that's just too dumb. You know, I was going to call it NeuroStim or BrainSync or something. that had a bit of a techie name to it. And he said, no, he said, I've thought it through. Digital audiovisual integration device, integrating you know, brainwaves through digital audiovisual stimulation. And I thought, well, you know, you kind of put some thought into it. I guess the name kind of works. So, okay, I'll slap it on your panel. <clears throat> and so I, I, I made two devices, one for him and one for me, because uh, I was kind of intrigued in it uh, or with it. And so anyway, I, I put it on the two panels. But the thing about silk screening, you know, when you silk screen a big panel, and these machines were big. These were 10 by 10 inch, and you had to wrap the panel around. So it was a pretty sizable panel. And to do all the artwork and make one panel was $1,500. But to make 100 panels was $1,600. So I said, let's make 100 panels. Good thing, because I destroyed the first half dozen trying to get these things to glue onto the, onto the aluminum casing. I started using it on myself to treat my own anxiety. And it, it was just absolutely remarkable how I would just drift into a very deep trance and be completely recovered for... Uh, a day often uh, from my own anxiety. And then we started using it on our TMJ patients. We were absolutely, it was absolutely remarkable how well that worked. Now there's, and when it comes to TMJ, and I do have a TMJ article on our website, there's two types of TMJ. There's the TMJ that is, that develops as a result of malocclusion. So your teeth aren't fitting together properly. And you maybe have, you've got uh, bite points in your, in your occlusion when you bite that that pre-occlude and then they throw your jaw into tilt and off kilter and that can cause all kinds of severe muscle uh, tension and spasms in the jaw. <clears throat> but there's another type of uh, TMJ that is clearly emotional and anxiety and the two are treated of course quite differently and that was one of the things I was doing uh, when I was designing this research lab. I was designing a device where we could discriminate 
just by doing some EMG measurements, we could discriminate whether or not TMJ was of emotional or, or anatomical origins. Uh, so anyway, I was using it on myself and it was working really well. And then we had a group of uh, patients that had severe jaw pain for probably 10 years or longer. And we ran a study on them and we looked at um, masseter EMG, which was very high. And we also looked at finger temperature because uh, vasoconstriction is a sign of being in a flight or fight type state or sympathetic mind state. There's also another aspect to this, and it's called TMJ personality. There was a, a researcher named Bob Yim who had founded a very interesting study looking at what they call TMJ personality, if it's of psychological origins. And what they found is when they had uh, uh, basically a stimulus response test where they had a panel of lights with switches on each light. And when a light came on, you had to hit the switch to turn the light off. Then another one would come on randomly somewhere else and you had to hit the switch to turn that off. And you had to do it as fast as you could. What they found is that controls and TMJ patients all had high jaw tension at the start. But as controls got better with this game, if you want to call it that, their, their tension went down and down and down and down. TMJs would go down for the first few trials, and then their tension would start to go right back up again to actually exceed the original tension that they had. And, and it was a, a type of performance anxiety where there's self-doubt. And so they develop all this, um, all this jaw tension. So we gave them a guided imagery that in psychological research has been shown to induce relaxation. And I had them laying down on a nice you know, couch. They were re reclined. It was really nice. Um, and we played this guided imagery that should induce relaxation based on research. Except we said... When we're done, we expect you to be relaxed. All of them tensed up, like double, double their jaw tension by the time we were done the guided imagery, which was about four minutes long. And, and then we put them on the entrainment right after that, and we took all this jaw tension. And meanwhile, their hands were getting colder and colder as they were supposedly relaxing. And their hands were like 76 degrees, almost room, you know, not much above room temperature, very vasoconstricted. Put them on the entrainment at 10 hertz, which is the alpha band. And in five minutes, jaw tension was just dropped off the, just dropped off, just dropped out of existence. They were so relaxed and their hands warmed to about 88 degrees Fahrenheit uh, at about the five minute interval. And we recorded to about 15 minutes and their hands warmed up. Yeah, 15 degrees Fahrenheit in many cases. And we're like, I was like, wow, this isn't a new age fad. This is real science. This is cool. Uh, so then I got serious about it. And I really started digging into the health sciences library at the University of Alberta and started discovering that it was in the idea of driving brainwaves was discovered in 1934. And there'd been hundreds of physiological studies done, you know, stimulus in brainwaves out. And there wasn't a whole lot of stuff on the psychological aspects of entrainment. But there was enough, and there was hypnotic induction studies. There were, um, uh, yeah, other studies like that, but mostly hypnotic type things or uh, relaxation studies and some things like this. So then I got very interested, and then I started writing. We started doing our own research. I started presenting at conferences, but um, the biofeedback and neurofeedback communities have been very wonderful. They've been very gracious with me, you know, not having a degree uh, in, in psychology at all. And they, they, they accepted me as one of their own. And now I lecture there continuously. Uh, 
Uh, but fortunately, they let me in. I, I did some lectures, and yeah, and then I've been. Then I bought a brain mapping system, an EEG system, and then another, and then another. I think I'm on my fourth system now, and to, to prove that entrainment worked. Uh, but in the process, we started now becoming sort of the, our the local experts for doing EM or doing EEGs uh, and looking at depression, anxiety, ADD, seniors with cognitive decline, and we're certainly doing our share of traumatic brain injuries, uh, both viral-based and concussion-based. So, and 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 it just keeps going. You know, if we, there's no stopping us now. We're like this big snowball. You can't slow it down. So. That's why I'm, I'm still here doing this all the time, you know, and I don't know if I'll ever get out of it. It's utterly fascinating. I'll probably just do this for life. Dave, that's the first time uh, I think we brought up TMJ. Dr. Skip, Dr. Laura, have we uh, come across any TMJ in our practices? Yeah, for sure. People report it, but I, I'll ask Laura here too, but I've never really followed up on it too much other than you know, Hey, it's causing me discomfort. It keeps me up at night because of the pain and that kind of thing. And maybe it was related to uh, a, a TBI, meaning an accident, right? So it's kind of all inclusive, but certainly never went down the trail of, Hey, there might be something going on here. Um, what about you, Laura? You know, uh, when I see it the most is actually when we're doing a brain map, um, and we have to be real careful to, you know, not have muscle tension as an artifact, you know, of uh, neurofeedback. We, we see a lot of TMJ. We see, you know, the shoulder tension, the, you know, everything, you know, through the, through the back can show up on a, on a brain scan. So, you know, it's something we have to be very careful that we're, you know, we're not looking at that. And we, we do have EMG sensors to do biofeedback to try to, you know, release a lot of that stuff. You know, now that people are wearing masks for doing their brain scans, uh, I had a, a, a young uh, teenager the other day and they, they had pulled their mask down just to whatever, adjust it. And it turned out they had braces on. And so the, the braces and the tension in their jaw were showing up in the brain scan. So uh, it's absolutely something we see all the time. And we, we get a lot of... Um, Ear, nose, and throat doctors refer to us uh, with a TMJ and with tinnitus and the vertigo. Um, so yeah, we're seeing some some good results, uh, and it's nice to have these kind of doctors refer to us. Do you think a dentist would refer on the on the grinding the TMJ? I would hope so. Yeah, are, are you I, seeing I just, a lot of dentists refer to you, Dave? Uh, you know, not too much. No, and. The, the issue with, uh, as you know, with so many disciplines in medicine, everybody has their own specialty and they have yeah. blinders on to everything else. Yeah. When I was involved with the university, we, we saw a lot of tinnitus. And even post-university, I was lecturing to dentists in the local area and we were getting TMJ referrals. That was a pretty common thing. <clears throat> but that was 30 years ago. And uh, so, no, we're not really getting any of that anymore. Now we're getting uh, more what you might call it. Um, idiopathic tinnitus a bit, but we're also getting just walk-ins. We don't get in, you know, we're getting just walk-ins and they could have TMJ issues. They could have psychological issues uh, causing it. They could have even somatosound, which I thought was fascinating because um, we've seen that before where actually there are sounds generated in the arteries when arteries, let's say, get a little plaque in them. The water will ripple over the arteries, you know, uh, over that plaque, uh, like water in a brook does or in a, in a creek. Yeah. Sure. And then it'll make vibrations and they'll hear this buzzing sounds in their ears. And it's actually real sound. 
that a doctor can hear if they put a stethoscope to the ear canal, they can pick it up with a stethoscope and that's called somatosound. And I don't think there's hardly any, anyone, maybe outside of medicine and probably not even many people in medicine recognize that that is an actual uh, legit form of tinnitus. That's not real tinnitus at all. And then we get into our industry, you know, the, the neurofeedback type industry that you're involved in. And people are taking this to crazy lengths. You know, they're looking at all the thalamocortical dysrhythmias and all that stuff. And it's getting, it's getting to be a, just, I don't know, I think there's a fair bit of psychobabble that's starting to play out in some of it. And yet some of it is true. I mean, they're finding that there's issues, you know, with the ventral medial prefrontal cortex and noise suppression circuits. And that affects, uh, you know, affects the hypothalamus uh, gating areas and all of this stuff. And certainly attentional circuits play a role in tinnitus but because nobody everybody has blinders on and only sees their little bit uh, they're not looking at all the forms so they always have a high failure rate I mean if there's four major types of tinnitus and you're treating everybody globally as if they're all the same you're going to have a 75 percent failure rate and that's what's going on in the in the tinnitus sort of if you want to call it tinnitus profession they're all having high failure rates because nobody is bothering to classify the tinnitus and treat it accordingly to its classification. So that's what I'm trying to bring to light with that article that I, that I wrote is that we need to have tinnitus specialists or we need group of professionals like a dentist, a doctor, a neuroscience person, and a psychologist. And they review cases as a group and they see, all see it from their perspective. But then one of those perspectives will be the shining light that will actually treat the tinnitus. Is tinnitus just ear ringing uh, for the laymen here, you know, for the, for the moms that are listening out there that are unfamiliar, what, what, what is tinnitus? Yeah, tinnitus primarily is, is typically it's a ringing sound. It can be other sounds too, but it is a sound that is a perception. It's doesn't it, officially tinnitus doesn't exist, you know, as an actual sound according to neuroscience. But then, but then again, according to medicine, yes, it can be a sounds referred by, sounds in the body that do get picked up in the ear. But if, but if, when you read most literature, almost uh, all the literature, the thousands of articles that have been published, almost all literature starts off with an introductory line that says, this is a perception of a sound that does not actually exist. But it's not quite accurate. You mentioned there's four types, and I'm sure Pete's going to put a link in the, the notes. Can you just briefly, you've already mentioned three, I think, but can you mention what they are super quick, the different types? Yes, there's a somatosound, which is real. Uh, there's the TMJ-derived uh, tinnitus, which generally is, has to do with malocclusion or, no, say, a bad filling, a poor cap that's not fitting correct. Um, braces, I say, where you're reducing all your contact points in your teeth now as your teeth are shifting, and that causes muscles to spasm up. The masseter and temporalis in particular, and, and also the lateral pterygoid muscle, which pulls the jaw forward, uh, when these muscles go into spasm, they will often tear the cartilage off the condyle or the ball of the mandible. And then it'll posteriorize and it'll pinch the, the tympanic and auricular nerve and arteries and stuff. And it'll cause these ringing sounds to start to occur. But then there's psychological TMJ where people are going through a lot of stress. And I went through that myself you know, with 18% interest rates and, and, and the university didn't pay well. So I had a lot of financial worries. And, and also having a couple of kids on the way and starting a business. I mean, lots of good reasons to have jaw tension. And so many people have jaw tension for psychological reasons nowadays. I mean, the jaw tension, there's studies that show before an American election, jaw tension, 
skyrockets from the anxiety because they're so polarized. And in particular, the last couple of elections where Trump got involved, the, the anxiety was so severe. I mean, if that's the time to invest, by the way, in all the drug companies, because before an American presidential election, sales of antidepressants, anti-anxiety meds and sleeping pills jumped considerably. And it did particularly in 2016 when when Trump uh, won the election. And it was severe. It was so severe that psychiatry actually named a disorder after uh, Donald Trump and they call it Trump anxiety disorder. It actually became a thing. And that all relates to jaw tension and tinnitus, if you have plenty of jaw tension. So you could just tense your jaws and eventually you can put all the kinds of pressure on the tympanic nerve and arteries. But the other form that stress and malocclusion cause, uh, there's little muscles in the back of the throat called the uh, levator palatini muscles, and they vent the eustachian tubes. I mean, often they can be plugged up. You, you have a cold, you have a flu, you know, and the eustachian tubes get a little plugged up. The, the uh, pressure builds inside the inner ear, and that can cause temporary tinnitus. But stress can cause these muscles to go into spasm as well as poor occlusion. And they will spasm, and they will then not vent. And then you'll get stale air, and usually bacteria builds up in the eustachian tubes. That causes ringing too. Now, when it's temporary it's fine but when it's long term any form of tinnitus that's long term and again you have the other type which is the cochlear dropout type where cilia in the cochlea you know which where we, we get all our different pitches of sound from that's what decodes sound into pitches uh cilia will be damaged and let me say we were talking about rock musicians and farmers too and and such people are exposed to a lot of loud noise over and over will start to get dropouts and frequency bands in their brain, and then the brain can't hear certain frequency bands. Well, the brain doesn't like that. So what it starts to do is it starts to recruit neurons in those frequency band areas where it can't hear well to try to bring up the volume. And in the process, the neurons start to ring on their own. Uh, through feedback loops and they start to self-oscillate and then you start hearing ringing that doesn't exist. And that kind of bridges in, I kind of lumped that as one classification uh, with the other type that has to do with thalamocortical dysrhythmia, which is how theta brainwaves nest into gamma brainwaves. And that starts getting way down the rabbit hole on the neurological side. Uh, but they've also, as you may have seen in that one picture I show of the brain, the attention circuits and the ventral medial prefrontal cortex and other and the cingulate and other parts of the brain start getting involved with that form of tinnitus, which is basically all neurological and nothing to do with hearing centers at all. It's all attention circuits and, and this and that that are misbehaving. And as a result, they don't gate tinnitus out at the olivary body uh, on its on its way into the brain. There's gating circuits in there, and the brain doesn't gate out because of attentional issues. So, in a, in a sense, there's kind of five types, but really, I, I lump those those two into uh, one category. So, there you go. In a nutshell, that's kind of yeah. it. Well, thanks, and and just a quick follow up. But the ocular dropout is what I'd always understood tinnitus was, and obviously, you're you're letting us know that hey, that's not the whole story. Are they distributed equally? Do, do you get, I mean, just in your experience running across folks, is it 25% for all the four slash five groups? 
You know, I honestly, from over the, I mean, I haven't really looked at the research to see where, how the demographics played. In fact, I don't think there's a study that has ever decimated uh, tinnitus into its groups, just with a cohort of a thousand people, let's say, and try to figure it out. But my experience over, you know, the 30 or 40 years I've been, 40 years that I've been doing this, is the TMJ one is, is quite prevalent, much more prevalent than medicine or neurology gives it credit for. And that's why they include so many people with TMJ issues into these other studies where they shouldn't be. But also hearing damage, like cochlear dropout is, is the second biggest one. I would say it's probably even with the TMJ one. And in actuality, those two probably, comp probably comprise about 80% of all tinnitus. And that's just a guesstimate off the top of my head from what I've seen over the years. And, and the neurological one is probably rarer. It also is tied to long-term tinnitus as well, where there's no neuroplasticity taking place that eventually is <laughs> redesigning the brain circuits. And so, I mean, a lot of people, when they start getting tinnitus for, you know, three or four months, they start seeking help at that point. So a lot of tinnitus is probably more acute when it gets into the hand of medical professionals and is not so chronic. And studies are probably looking at that more. So when you do read a study, you really need to see when they look at a cohort of tinnitus, if they can tell you what type, that's great. And if they can tell you how long, I think that's another important factor. Now, in that article, I did show cases. I showed there, I referenced two studies where they looked specifically at TMJ type muscle tension tinnitus. And when they did the techniques that were related to, you know, balancing the occlusion or doing EMG biofeedback, their results were highly successful. So they showed that if you break them down into their, into their phenotypes or their subtypes, um, yeah, you can have a pretty high success rate, but you do have to break them down and, and identify what their origins are at that point in time. Like I say, in a lot of these, which could be TMJ at the onset, or they could be cochlear dropout at the onset, often end up becoming the neurological type over the years through neuroplastic changes in the brain. Dr. Lord, Dr. Skip, what's the brain map going to show for the TMJ and then for the tinnitus for the new clinicians out there? Or is it too hard to pick up? Well, no. So, so um, a lot of the jaw tension, again, the person I was mentioning with uh, who's wearing braces, they, they showed uh, on both sides over their ears, uh, just a lot of dysregulation. So, and it's, you know, bilateral because it's going to be both sides most times. And yeah, it's going to be this artificial, you know, dysregulation on both sides over their ears. You know, when, when I was in biofeedback, I'll back up a little bit, biofeedback training, the way it was explained to me is that a lot of our tension uh, originates in our belly. And we can say intestinally and all of that, we go down that, that place. But, you know, when you take a deep breath, you want to, you know, you fill your lungs and your abdomen goes out. And the point that they were making with us in the training is that your, your ribs move up and down uh, when you're breathing and your shoulders kind of get into the act when you're breathing. But the point is your shoulders shouldn't move when you're taking a proper deep breath. And so when you're extending your shoulders during breathing, the, that tension you know, rolls up your neck and up through your jaw. And now you have this jaw tension. I know he's mentioning different types of, of, of jaw pain, but, but the one maybe you know, he's referencing you know, psychologically is, is, yeah, you got this improper breathing. You're always in fight or flight. You're using your shoulders to breathe when, you, when they're not involved. They shouldn't be involved. 
and then you got the jaw pain and then the the tension goes up the the side of your face and into your the front the frontalis the the your forehead muscles and so your tension is from belly to your forehead and you know in, in a very simplistic way you know you could you can attack the fight or flight anxiety if you alter one part of the system they all come so if you you lower your breathing rate your your muscle tension should come down if you increase you go the other way you increase your muscle tension here comes your breathing rate so they all kind of move along on one system up or down and uh you know the easiest thing we find we can consciously control is our breathing by say hey hold your breath that's something you can consciously do if i tell you you know lower your your uh, reduce your jaw tension that's probably something you can also consciously do but the point is if you can you know uh, affect one, one part of the system, they, they all come down. And if you can put sensors everywhere, you know, we have all that uh, equipment, you put sensors for your heart rate, sensors for your, uh, you know, the, the sweat on your fingers, sensors on your face to reduce the muscle tension. And we, we can do these kind of assessments. I'm sure Dave could talk about it, that, um, you know, you could put a, a sensor on each side of your, your face and you could do a little assessment and maybe there is some imbalance where one side is tighter than the other and you loosen one side and the other one tightens and kind of back and forth. And, you know, the more you can gain conscious control over it, um, you know, the more confidence you can have to, you know, affect change and, and be more in control of what's going on. Ten, with the 1020 system, what do you think in C3, C4, T3, T4? Is that where this would show up? Yeah. All of that over your ears. Yeah. Everything. And then, you know, then, and again, your, your front muscles get involved too. So it's not all just, you know, the specific place that is dysregulated, but yeah, you know, again, if you, you you get the muscle, the uh, improper breathing in your belly, that affects your shoulders, affects your neck. Now you've got, yeah, T3, T4, C3, uh, C4, but then it moves up to the front too. And, and that's actually more of what I'll see is, is this front tension by, you know, both sides bilaterally in, in the front. And it could well be from improper breathing and from jaw tension and everything in between. Okay. What were you asking, Pete? Sorry. Yeah. That, I mean, that's TMJ. What about tinnitus? I've, I've, I can't remember seeing a brain map with tinnitus. So. Yeah, oh, tinnitus. Yeah. So that's going to be more cerebellar things that, that we often see. And actually, when Dave was talking, I was thinking of the thing that popped was uh, just anticipatory hearing. Like your, your brain is anticipate, in, anticipating hearing something when there's nothing there. And that kind of made me think of like phantom pain. Like your, your brain is, exp, you know, exp, uh, anticipating a leg there and there isn't one there or something like that in um, kind of this forward loop of, um, you know, I'm going to hear something um, and it just, and, and then it has this obsessional quality and then just kind of keeps on. So yeah, you're going to see anterior cingulate, cingulate things, cerebellar things. And we, when I do like vertigo, uh, I believe someone, you know, Pete had some vertigo and we did some cerebellar training with them. Yeah. And yeah, she, when she stood up, uh, yeah, she was uh, having trouble with her balance and we did some cerebellar training and kind of, uh, helped her put that back together. That was pretty quick. It was, yeah. We did, yeah, a couple couple sessions, and she was good. Dave, I have on my notes here. What is AVE? Well, AVE is audio visual entrainment, and so that's okay. flashing lights and pulsing sounds in the ears. Now, originally, when it was conceived in 1934, it was all about frequencies in. And then the brain, what basically entrainment means is that if you put stimulation into a biological system, you, it will often start to resonate with that stimulation at the same frequency. 
And of course, with, with the brain, this is very easy to do with lights and sounds, and especially lights. I mean, every time a light flashes into your eyes, it routes up uh, you know, through the optic chiasm into the thalamus. And the thalamus is the gatekeeper of all, basically most of our rhythms, including beta or excluding beta, <clears throat> is routed through the thalamus. Alpha waves, uh, most theta rhythms, except for hippocampal ones, and delta rhythms, and even beta is influenced by the thalamus. And so if you flash lights at any frequency, pretty much between, you know, about three or four hertz to 40, you will see that that signature show up in the EEG. That was mostly based on a very, very intense, uh, very, very intense strobe lights that were like in the 50,000 lux area. And, and, the, and neurology still uses flashing lights all the time that are extremely intense to try to see if there's epileptiform activity going on in the brain. Our version of entrainment is, is much more gentle than that. We don't use square wave stimulation as neurologists would because square waves are the type of waves that can trigger seizures. So we round all of our waves. We typically use sine waves or what we would call a, a sort of a fast sine wave. We also use field stimulation for a lot of our stimulation now because the, the left fields of both eyes goes to the right hemisphere and the right fields go to the left. And so we can do the left fields at a different frequency than the right side. Like for instance, with depression, where you typically will see heightened alpha in the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is right around F3 on an EEG as compared to F4. And so we have an alpha beta protocol where we put basically uh, alpha on the left fields for the right brain to calm those sort of fear centers that are more on the right frontal area. And, and we use then beta in the right side to suppress the alpha down on the left hemisphere and the left frontal lobes. And, the, and what, most, what is interesting about entrainment, it, entrainment not only increases the frequency of stimulation, but generally suppresses the half frequency of stimulation. So someone has high 10 hertz alpha at F3 and we give them 20 hertz beta, it will typically suppress the 10 hertz alpha. And we've done work with that with Tom Kalura of BrainMaster. We've published, uh, we published a book chapter on that a few years back showing that effect. And it's pretty cool. So anything between about 10 hertz to 20 hertz stimulation will inhibit about 5 to 10 hertz. Or you can actually go to about 12 hertz of EEG. And so we use it as an inhibitory effect uh, all the time. Uh, Tom has a beautiful example of an ADHD boy who is uh, cranking out huge volumes of 7 hertz theta. And that's why he's ADHD. Tom gave him 14 hertz photic stimulation. And within two minutes, that theta was completely suppressed. So it's, it's very fast at how you can do that. But that being said, other things about entrainment, you know, the, say, the, again, the term entrainment implies that there's a frequency in the, in the brain, in this case, that follows the frequency of stimulation. But studies have shown that entrainment drives up cerebral blood flow considerably. And many psychiatric disorders are hypoperfusion of cerebral blood flow, like ADD, depression, cognitive decline, concussions. All these things are, are low levels of cerebral blood flow. And entrainment drives it up. Uh, entrainment also drives up lactate and ATP, 260% in five minutes. And that might be why we see 
really miraculous stuff usually happened at about the five to 10 minute mark, especially on concussion. It's wild, but you see change with concussion, 10 to, usually 10 to 15 minutes into entrainment. The weird thing is, is that uh, the concussion group that I'm looking at have what I'm calling a flammocortical disconnect. So because of a, of a crash in lactate and ATP, which is glia regulated, there's a sub subsequent crash in norepinephrine, which is the brain's adrenaline, which also then causes a crash in the calcium gradient and all synapses in the brain must have calcium or they can't mediate the neurotransmitters that cross the synapses when there's action potentials. So the whole system crashes down. And that's why I've got a, a DC system now. I've got this cute little, you, you might like this. This is a Mitsar a Bluetooth transmitter. It's called the Smart BCI, and it measures DC as well as AC because the chemicals in the brain are going to affect the DC. And lactate and calcium and, and so on have very positive charges in the brain. And what I'm seeing is that over areas where there's severe brainwave slowing, I'm also seeing DC potentials that are in the millivolt level, not microvolts, but millivolts, like two, three, four millivolts. And you'll see really slowing, real slowing of the, the brain. And what I assume is going on is that with the chemical instability, there's a point at which the thalamus gets too charged with respect to the cortex and then it stops oscillating. And these, and then that's when everything starts to really crash. Uh, I mean, low levels of lactate are, are um, associated with severe anxiety, uh, but also in the process of crashing the thalamocortical loop, they can't make alpha waves anymore. So they have generalized anxiety disorder because they can't make alpha waves. These guys are low voltage and they're very flat lined on an EEG, very flat line, just a couple microvolts, and they can't make alpha at all. So I have to set up the environment to be very alpha conducive because you can easily not have alpha if you've got all kinds of thoughts running around in your head because of stressors in your life and anxieties in your life and so on. Yeah, so these, so these guys are very flat lined. Normally your alpha, so anyway, I have to say, I have to set up the environment to be very alpha conducive because you can have psychological anxiety and brainwaves are so dynamic. Even if your patient is just uneasy in your, in your treatment room, they're not going to make alpha. And if they're uncomfortable, if they have pain, I have found that, uh, that, that, that younger ladies, pretty younger ladies have had their share of rudeness from guys. And they're typically guarded being in a room alone with a guy like me laying down in a chair and I, and I always recline them as well. So they're very comfortable. And I put little cushions under their bum, their back, their shoulders, their neck, just to make them as comfortable as possible. And I found that again, if it's an, an attractive young lady and if I put, she often won't make really any alpha, but if I put a light blanket on her, her alpha will jump two standard deviations. We have to factor all these things in. And I turn on a fan for white noise. I dim the lights and they make the environment very conducive to make alpha. And what I'll often see is I'll see a few channels will make alpha and other channels are flatlining. And that's, those are the damaged circuits, but they're really not damaged from an MRI perspective, from a structural perspective, they're damaged metabolically. So they're just not running metabolically. <clears throat> and then we see these voltages showing up in the DC band. Sometimes the entire head is flatlined and they just can't make it at all. That being said, though, 
there are people like like doctoral students, uh, people running businesses, uh, even police officers, where there's so much anxiety going on in their head or in their mind that they cannot make alpha because they're, they have racy thoughts continually going on. And if your eyes are closed and you're racing with thoughts, you're not going to make alpha either. So if I'm five minutes into a recording and they're still flatlining, I will just quietly say, just let your thoughts go. And if that alpha suppression is psychological, I'll suddenly get a big burst of alpha across usually almost all the channels for about a minute. And then it all suppresses down as they start thinking again. But now I know that alpha suppression is psychological. It's not neurological. And that's how I tease out neurological suppression of alpha from a, a, a brain injury versus psychological suppression from just a hectic, anxious life. It's, that's the first step is teasing out those two, those two phenotypes. And then we go from there. Dave, that could easily be both. I don't know about easily, but that could also be both, right? Oh, oh yeah, because when people's right. lives start to fall apart, they start getting very racy headed as well. Right. And I say that to everybody who is, who's kind of flatlining and they can't make alpha. I say, let your thoughts go on everybody. And say, and the psychological group, you'll suddenly see a big burst in alpha. The neurological group can't. But usually you see a couple of channels that are running. So no, you know they can make alpha in, in a couple of channels. So you know their mindset's in the right place. Like maybe I'll see alpha at O2 and it's spinning out pretty good. And I'll see alpha at C3 and maybe F8 and all the other channels are down. So I know that their mindset is in that relaxed state where they can make alpha psychologically, but neurologically those other channels cannot make it because of a thalamocortical disconnect. Dr. Skip, Dr. Laura, how we how we doing? We got we got a few minutes left. Got any I think other... we're good. I think we're good. Uh, maybe to kind of bring it down a little bit, you know, for the folks who are, um, you know, kind of like, spinning their head like a little me? bit about thalamical cortical connections and things. Yeah. Uh, you know, the the point is that you know alpha. You mentioned alpha quite a bit. Alpha is your um, kind of your 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 uh, cruise control. Your um, cru- well, maybe cruising altitude. When, when you're at rest and you're, you're, you're not really uh, uh, goal directed, you're not doing a ton of things. The, the goal here is for you to have um, at rest, to have alpha waves going. If you have beta, it means it's too fast. If you have theta, things are generally too slow. And so, yeah, there's this kind of sweet spot. And so everything I believe Dave's talking about is, yeah, how do we, how do we get your brain regulated? How do we, you know, find a rhythm, get it back on track or start it on a good track and uh, sounds like he's, you know, developed a lot of research and technology to help people find that, that rhythm. Uh, am I saying that correctly, Dave? Yeah, I think you're hitting the nail on the head. Thank you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, so you, you, you participated in developing the, uh, c- can you tell like the average, you know, Joe, uh, you know, who may be listening kind of how they can access the device you're talking about and what, what they would have to do if they were to, you know, come in with a clinician and use it or purchase it on their own and use it. Like, what are we talking about to them? So, you know, I kind of laid it out there that, you know, we're trying to, no matter what we're doing, whether it's neurofeedback or entrainment, we're trying to get their brain into a good, good, healthy rhythm, you know, where they're not overstimulated or understimulated. And there's many ways to do that. Neurofeedback is definitely one of the ways. Biofeedback, like I said, with breathing techniques and other muscle relaxation techniques is a good way to, you know, get the brain into good rhythm. Uh, can you describe, since, you know, there's no, no visuals here, kind of what entrainment uh, technology you have available and how they might 
access it or what a session would look like to them if they were to come in and use it? Sure. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, we have about 500 clinicians throughout Canada and U.S. probably who are distributing and use our, our equipment. And then around the world, we have uh, other um, clinicians as well. Fortunately, the negative side effects of entrainment are pretty much non-existent, at least the way we do it. They're pretty much non-existent. And so it's safe. It's a safe technology. It addresses most of the things that, you know, that are issues when we have psychological issues. Like it, it, it drives up uh, norepinephrine, some serotonin and endorphins go up with entrainment. Cerebral blood flow goes up. Lactate and ATP go up. Heat shock protein goes up. And plus you can take people who are going through severe anxiety and flight or fight. And we're getting a lot of this now with COVID. And you can immediately go into a very deep, uh, sort of a meditative trance, which only takes a few minutes. And at that point, you really stabilize well. Because so much of what goes on with people, I mean, there's often maybe neurological underpinnings. But then once, the, uh, once all the flight or fight stuff gets in, uh, two-thirds of your condition could all be the flight or fight stuff uh, yeah. that has developed as a secondary issue to your primary issue, which really exacerbates issues. So just getting people to get profoundly relaxed and break the HPA axis, that's the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, so your flight or fight axis, which entrainment breaks very well. Uh, just breaking that axis, you, get, you see a lot of recovery uh, from people quite quickly. But I do generally try to steer people to clinicians if it's a rather severe a condition that they're dealing with. I think that's just really the only responsible way to do it. But there are certainly uh, clients where, where there's just no clinician around, uh, you know, so they can buy the gear off, off our website. Often I'll have maybe a conversation with them about it and what to start with and what their, what their symptoms are. And maybe we'll try to give them a little guidance on what maybe they could run first. I still say prefer that they do this stuff with a clinician. Uh, but we have we've we certainly do sell uh, plenty of gear over the uh, internet, and we have not had issues uh, that are in terms of negative side effects at all, and that's really nice. But we've done a lot of things with our gear to prevent negative side effects. Don't use square waves. Uh, we typically use two like field stimulation at two different frequencies. We also randomize uh, mildly, not too much, but a little bit, because randomization has turned out to be entrainment quite a bit more effective. And, and, we, and we just don't see ab reactions with all these things. In, the, in days past, like 20 years ago, when the technology was new, and we used fixed frequency, and we used square waves, and we used white lights, or um, uh, we had certainly did have our ab reactions in those days, but I have not seen anything now in probably 15 years. Dave, can they also find clinicians uh, through your website? They can certainly call in or, or send an email. That's the best way. Yeah, we don't have a listing of clinicians on our website, but they can. We, but we'll certainly find them all the clinicians we can find in their area uh, that they can go to. Yeah. So, but so they Dave, can purchase. They can purchase the device, and then use one of your clinicians or find a clinician locally who can kind of walk them through the process. And so just real quick. So entrainment is, is this procedure of putting headphones on or wearing uh, goggles and you probably can say obviously better than I can, but they're, they're either having some kind of stimulation visually or with sound frequencies that help them regulate their, their brain functioning and get in closer to that alpha state or, or, you know, that relaxed state where the fight or flight, system disengages. Um, and so they're, they're wearing this device 
um, rather than neurofeedback where they're watching, you know, uh, movies or something like that, and they're getting getting their brain waves trained uh, to be regulated. This is actually stimulation through visual uh, stimuli or, or audio, like they're listening to different uh, sounds that help them get get their brain into a good groove. Is that right? Well, kind of, yeah. The sound is really kind of like a like a like a pop 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 kind of sound. But there's two sides to it, and they're out of sync with each other generally. So you get these beats going on, and it's it's very very consuming. It drifts you, it trances you up pretty quick. Yeah, then the lights are flashing away too, and you see psychedelic patterns, which are quite engaging. And and if you if you put EMG on them, or I mean, if you put biofeedback monitors on, like heart rate variability, and I've got a great heart rate variability lecture. Uh, on YouTube right now showing people who are untrainable with HRV. And as soon as you add entrainment to the process, their HRV is beautiful in, in minutes. Mm-hmm. It, it's uh, And uh, John LeMay has done some nice work for us in that. But we, if you look at HRV, you look at EMG, you look at finger temperature, you look at uh, galvanic uh, electrodermal activity, <clears throat> these things fall off into what would you, what you'd see with, with an advanced meditator uh, in just minutes. Yeah, as a whole HPA axis goes down and basically a, you get a parasympathetic response. Yeah. It's very so, impressive to watch. So people just trance out and they just wake up after the session's over and they're like, well, that was a nice little sleep. Yeah. yeah. And that's, it's that's a good thing. A good thing that we use. And even John Anderson, that's how he introduced it to us that, uh, you know, do, do a bit of this before neurofeedback. So it kind of gets you in the mood, gets you in the groove of being able to be more effective with the neurofeedback, um, uh, so doing it in combo is tends to be a good thing, right? Well, it it improves neurofeedback outcomes dramatically. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, what is neurofeedback actually treating? You know, uh, when you're treating anything that's a slow brain wave, you're also increasing cerebral blood flow. And Herschel Tumim, who had, do you remember Herschel Tumim? Uh, he had a, a little. He did a hemoencephalography. So on the forehead, he had a little uh, in, near infrared. He had two LEDs that were near infrared and red, and he would shoot them into the skull. And about two inches away, he had a receiver that would pick up the light that got reflected out or got, didn't get absorbed. And he was using that as neurofeedback and having, uh, yeah, he was showing that between looking at cerebral blood flow and hemoglobin, like iron that's in hemoglobin or oxygenation that's in hemoglobin, he had, he had two measures that were going on. And he was having uh, what yeah, dramatically better results with ADHD and dementias and things like this than electrically based neurofeedback. Unfortunately, Herschel has passed away and no one is taking his technology. Uh, yeah, it's, it's now his technology, unfortunately, has kind of disappeared from our community. Uh, but so, yes, yeah, so a lot of neurofeedback is about driving up cerebral blood flow. Some neurofeedback is also about just engaging on a task and learning how to engage on a task. And studies of neurofeedback have shown that if a clinician is present with the patient, neurofeedback is more successful than if the clinician is not present. And that's, again, partially about getting to do an attention task and learning what the states feel like. And by measuring the EEG, you can certainly then have an objective measure to associate an alpha state. I mean, is very different than a suppressed alpha state where beta is more dominant. And and um, uh, we used to make a, a I used to uh, manufacture an EEG device that had a bar graph on it and a tone. And I would teach my clients how to focus intently in the bar graph, which mostly measured alpha theta, would drop almost to zero as they were very intensely focused. 
and then meditate and go into a trance. And then the bar graph would just, the tone would go, and the bar graph would just be climbing as their alpha is coming up and up and up. So learning to what states feel like and how to shift states is essential for good brain functioning as well, because we need to know how to get into one state and get out of, and go into another state, depending on the situation that we're in. And when you look at, let's say, ADHD and, and dementia and, and concussions, or they're stuck in one state and they can't flex out of it. And then you get all your anxious people who are very, 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 in, in too, way too intense, and they don't make any alpha much naturally, and they need to learn how to make it. So they can be, because people who are too intense don't do well socially, they struggle with sleep, they struggle with other issues, and now they have to learn how to bring that alpha up. And when soon as they do, and they're more relaxed, they socialize better, people like enjoy hanging around them better, and their relationships improve, and so on. So neurofeedback is partly about modulating, uh, say, on an electrical level, we're modulating the, the waves, but also on a neurological level, we're modulating neurotransmitters, we're modulating cerebral blood flow, and other things that are, are going on, we're modulating the glia, and other things are going on that modulate the neurons. Like, for instance, all gamma activity is all glia-based. So if you're going to do gamma uptraining uh, indirectly, you're actually modulating the glia to modulate the neurons. You're not going directly to the neurons, which is what we're actually, even though we're measuring the neurons, we're not actually modulating the neurons. We're doing it indirectly through the glia. So all these kinds of things are even going on with neurofeedback, as they are with entrainment. And other technologies too, you know, like transcranial DC stimulation has similar effects as well. And pulsed EMF, they all have similar effects in terms of cerebral blood flow, neurotransmitters and other things. I don't know about measures in terms of uh, lactate and ATP, which entrainment does drive up significantly, or heat shock protein, which entrainment drives up considerably as well. But certainly you see that there's overlap with all these technologies generally in terms of the electrical, the blood flow, probably the neurotransmitters at least. And glia activation. We yeah. need another. We got to bring Dave back. <laughs> Holy, cr we we got to bring you back, back, Dave. We got. I want to hear about your research on concussions, TBI. I think that that'll be fantastic. We'll send you the link. You're going to find it pretty fascinating. And there's one case that I want to. I would love to show. We almost need some visuals. But one of the things about concussion is that almost everybody who has bounced around somehow, and juggled their brain, even if they didn't actually have a concussion, they may be whiplash or other things. I did it to myself just doing somersaults one day. And you can pop your atlas bone out of position. It's called a subluxated atlas. And it is so prevalent amongst concussion cases that I will not even brain map anyone now until we've reset their atlas bone because it pinches the brainstem and causes the brain and the mind to go wild. My most severe case was a boy who was 20 years old. I saw him last March. And he was one year post-car accident. They had spent, or motorcycle accident. They had spent $100,000 on him now with neurologists and stuff. Still, he was having seizures all the time. Five to 10 minute, they were real seizures though. These are brainstem seizures, which I had not seen before. And he would be paralyzed for five to 10 minutes. He could see and hear, but he could not move. And if he didn't get down fast enough, he would fall over and, and bang himself on the ground. The father was, I lectured in, in Sacramento and the father took in my lecture uh, and came up to Canada and we mapped this boy. 
And sure enough, you know, uh, outside of his, his alpha spindles being all disconnected everywhere, nothing was, there was the comodulation and severe phase issues and comodulation issues. To a lay person, you, wouldn't, you couldn't really tell that he was having issues really because there were no spike and wave activity in his brain whatsoever. It was all from a brainstem. And anyway, one of the signs of a subluxated atlas is if you see a shoulder like this when they stand against the wall and they're all spasmed in that neck and shoulder, they probably have an atlas bone that has shifted. There's only one profession that can treat it that I have found so far. And some people will make it even worse. Uh, like, and, and these are the only people I have found that can treat it are chiropractors who have taken training from what's NUCA, it's called, National Upper Cervical Chiropractic Association. And they use x-rays to evaluate where that atlas bone is. So they're not just yanking and pulling and guessing where it's going to end up. Those chiropractors make things worse, uh, generally speaking. Anyway, I got full EEGs on this guy during seizure, not during seizure, and all of these issues. Anyway, we got his, uh, his atlas bone straightened out, and immediately he never had a seizure again. Wow. Or, or an Dave, event. Dave you're, you're coming back. That's all there is to it. Dave, your website is mindalive.com. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. Okay. We're going to point everybody over there, check out the equipment. Um, we're going to have links on the podcast and on our, on our blog. Dave, John Anderson recommended you to come on the show. Can you recommend somebody to come on the show? We'll reach oh, out yes. to him. Actually, I can. With all this concussion work that we've been doing and using yeah. entrainment, it so far has been the only technique I've seen that resolves this flat-lined thalamocortical disconnect type of concussion that is falling through the cracks. And it also seems to be viral-based as well. And it's a metabolic disorder. It's, it's not real. It's not a structural uh, disorder. Anyway, I've been sharing this information with a lady who's been working with a lot of football players from NFL who are a mess. And she uses entrainment as triage uh, because th these gentlemen are so unstable uh, that they could hurt themselves or somebody at any given time. And nobody knows when that's going to happen. So she mm -hmm. uses entrainment as triage. She also uses it with heart rate variability training as well to get them uh, stabilized as well. And her name is Becky Basham, B-A-S-S-H-A-M. Her and I have been co-lecturing uh, at the different conferences and I do my section on, on TBI, and then she does her section on the football players. And uh, she would be also a great person to have on your show. Oh, great. Dave, thank you so much. I'm going to reach out to her as soon as we, we get done here. Sure. Guys, we're out, we're, we're out of time. What a show. We got our yeah. money's worth. Dave, thanks, thanks for coming. Dave. I'm glad I'm glad we had you on. Oh, my goodness. Uh, idea for a topic, please email Pete at neuronoodle.com. Dr. Laura can be found at jansons.com, J-A-N-S-O-N-S.com. Dr. Skip can be found at drskip, H-R-I-N.com. And again, Dave can be found at mindalive.com. Check out some of that equipment there. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter. Cue the music.